to another episode of Omen Revelations Podcast, the flagship show of the Omen Comics Podcast Network. My name is Mike Nunley, and with me as always is my friend and co-host Steve Sellers. Today we are going to be talking about Dungeons and Dragons, the game, its place in pop culture, the Forgotten Realms setting, and of course the movie Honor Among Thieves. Our hope here is to use the movie as a gateway to the game and inspire others to play Dungeons and Dragons too. Now, if you're a long time player, all of this episode might not be for you as you already know some of the stuff we're going to be talking about here. But I think we're bringing a little something for everyone who has either seen the movie or is considering playing. Uh, you should also know that the game stuff we are going to be talking about is from fifth edition. Uh, that is what we play in our D&D group, the Fellowship of the D20, and it is the current edition. Uh, but before we get started, was there anything you wanted to say, Steve? I do, actually. D&D has been part of my life for a very long time, even uh, if I wasn't actively playing the game for most of it. I played a lot in middle school and in high school, way back during the uh, ancient days of second edition. Um, I still have some of the old handbooks that I bought and used back then, and to this day, they still have a place on my gaming shelf. I also still have my old bag of dice. Um, that I used when I played in my teens. So uh, the game stuck with me even during the long years when I didn't have a group. Um, but I was still invested in the worlds of D&D. I mean, I read many of the novels. Um, I played a Planescape Torment and the Baldur's Gate video games frequently as that was the closest that I could get to a, a true D&D experience. And in fact, I actually have a version of Baldur's Gate 2 that was signed by one of the voice actors. Uh, wow. So that got pretty hardcore into that. Um, but uh, getting back to it, um, I got back into the game with 5th edition and when we started with the Fellowship of the D20, and I grew to really love playing it. Wow, man. <laughs> That's really awesome. Um, I, I'm proud to have been a part of your getting back into it and, and to be playing with you. Uh, but, but I didn't mean to interrupt. Uh, that was just a really cool story. Uh, but, but, but speaking of stories, uh, please continue. Yeah, sure. I'd be glad to. Um, I also want to mention that D&D indirectly got me into writing in the first place. Uh, during my high school years, I discovered the Dragonlance setting, and especially the Dragonlance uh, novels by Margaret Weiss and Tracy Hickman, uh, starting with the Dragonlance Chronicles. While we won't be uh, covering uh, Dragonlance in this episode, I will say that the Dragonlance Chronicles inspired me to try my hand at writing fantasy, and that started my path to eventually writing comics. So the game has been a huge part of my life in some way or another. Uh, has it been the same for you, Mike? Not, not on your scale, no. I mean... I read a ton of choose-your-own-adventure books when I was a kid. It's not D&D, but I'm painting a picture here. Uh, my foster brother, who grew up to be a DM, by the way, would make up scenarios, and I would role-play them and, and deciding what to do at each turn. And, and that was really kind of role-playing without the game part, basically. Uh, but, but when I was a kid, my dad would make what amounts to a dungeon for us to crawl through, and we made characters for those. It, was, it had little to no story, really, and, and was mostly just a series of puzzles and traps and and looking for treasure or, or, or even a way just to get out of the dungeon uh this was inspired by dmd but nothing like it in practice so uh, while it was not dmd it did get me interested in the idea 
love role-playing games. So much so that I spent many of my teen hours inspired by mythology, Lewis and Tolkien, trying to come up with my own D&D game based on some AD&D books I got my hands on. Uh, but alas, even if I had finished, <laughs> I would not have had anyone to play with. All of my friends were above such things as D&D and comic books, for that matter. Uh, I did, however, run into a few situations where I was able to jump in and play for a session in my late teens and early 20s. Uh, and I think I think that was second edition and, and 2.5. Uh, I'm not positive, but I did not play again until I was in my 30s. And, and again, it was just a few sessions. I want to say that it was third edition and 3.5 there. Um, I did read a Dragonlance book once, uh, though I, I, I don't really remember that much of it. Uh, I did read a Forgotten Realms book, however, uh, about a church full of vampires. That was interesting. I did not get seriously into Dungeons and Dragons, where I had bought my own books, dice, rolling tray, and, and sheets to play live until 2022. And, and, and that was fifth edition. Um, as for what suddenly sparked my D&D fire recently, I, I'm going to have to get into that part later. That sounds good. And I look forward to getting into that. I will say that I relate uh, to, to the idea of starting with choose your own adventure uh, and moving in gradually into role playing. It was the same thing with me. Um, I, I didn't get into RP uh, role playing directly until my uh, middle school group, but I transitioned into it with the books that I'd read. So I read three things like the Zork books for kids, uh, the Lone Wolf books, or the Steve Jackson sorcery books, which are all uh, choose your own fantasy adventure titles. Uh, they all had their own rules. I also had similar period where I didn't have a group, um, but that was driven more by a long move. And I just didn't know anybody who was hugely into the game the way that I was. There weren't even any gaming shops where I lived, though fortunately that's not the case now. So with that out, that out of the way, why don't we dive into the film now, Mike? That sounds like a great idea. Uh, Dungeons and Dragons Honor Among Thieves came out back in March of this year as a reboot to the franchise. So in case you're wondering, it is not connected to any other previous Dungeons and Dragons films, including the trilogy that came out between 2000 and 2012. Honor Among Thieves was directed by Jonathan Goldstein and John Francis Daly, who also co-wrote the screenplay with Michael Gilio uh, from a story by Chris McKay and Michael Gilio. Uh, the film stars Chris Pine as Edgin Darvis, uh, Michelle Rodriguez as Holga Kilgore, uh, Reggae Jean Page as Zank Yendar, Justice Smith as Simon Armar, uh, Sophia Lillis as Doric, Hugh Grant as Forge Fitzwilliam, and Chloe Coleman as Kira Davis, and Daisy Head as Sophina. Uh, so let's talk about the co-writer and co-director John Francis Daly for, for, for just a second here. In a, in a now somewhat prophetic performance, Daly starred in the TV series Freaks and Geeks, which is beloved by many. Uh, but check this out. Daly's character, Sam Weir, is a huge D&D fan, and you even see him playing D&D with his friends in the show's finale episode, uh, Discos and Dragons. Who would have thought that that actor would co-write and co-produce a major Dungeons and Dragons movie just 23 years later i know that i wouldn't have because that's mainly because i haven't seen a single thing with daily in it no <laughs> not even freaks and geeks which i just never got into um the only thing he's been involved with at all that i've seen is spider-man homecoming which he wrote although i do seem to recall that he's also uh, was involved with the flash movie as well most recently still it is really cool that he finally got to do with this film but let's talk about the influences that daily and jonathan goldstein used in the film they went back to several classic genre films, including The Princess Bride, Indiana Jones, and unsurprisingly, Lord of the Rings. Tolkien was a huge influence on D&D &D itself, so that's pretty much far from the course. 
But more surprisingly, they took influence from Monty Python and the Holy Grail, especially with comedy. Um, they didn't want to take it too far and turn the film into a spoof, but they did want to lean a little bit into uh, Monty Python-style absurdity. They wanted some comedy balanced out with the heist genre, D&D's high fantasy roots, and even a little bit of light horror. Uh, and while the film leads into comedy a little bit more than I typically prefer in a D&D adventure, it still balanced out reasonably well. Anyway, let's get into what this film actually is. Now, I haven't heard of the specific starting location of this film, but it is set in Icewind Dale, a region I know well from the books that I've read. In fact, there are even a couple of uh, video games set in the region called Icewind Dale, and there are decent dungeon crawlers. But anyway, as it turns out, the place the movie starts in is featured in a D&D adventure module called Rime of the Frost Maiden. So already that we can see that there was some homework done on the Forgotten Realms as a setting, which I appreciated. Micah, do you want to start us off on that? I sure do, Steve. But first, I want to say that I really appreciated Honor Among Thieves' work and staying true to the game and the setting. It really endeared me to the movie, and then it was a good story on top of that. So I was sold. But yes, let me get started on the movie. Uh, the movie starts out with Edgin and Holga in a prison labor camp in Icewind Dale called Revel's End, a prison used by the Lord's Alliance to hold Sword Coast's worst criminals. Edgin is certain that they will finally get out this time when they go up for review. But the reason he thinks that is somewhat deceptive to a D&D player. You see, Edgin says that Jonathan, an agent of the Lord's Alliance, is an Arakokra, and that's why they'll get out. A D&D player immediately thinks that this is because the Arakokra, being a bird species, are free spirit and particularly hate being confined, or in this case, imprisoned. Uh, they prefer the outdoors. Thus, an Arakokra would abhor a cage. And so a D&D player watching assumes that Edgin was planning on using that knowledge of the species to his advantage during his review. Um, it was quite a surprise finding out that Edgin was simply using him uh, for his wings to break their fall out of the tower. Uh, what did you think of that scene, Steve? Were you tricked like I was watching that scene, or, or did you see it coming? I picked up on it, but not until right before it happened. At first, I thought that Edgin just wanted Jonathan there because he was trying to sway the council into granting them a pardon, um, and he was just basically BSing around. But then I started seeing Chris Pine glancing at the window behind him, and then I realized he was probably going to stage an escape through the window. <laughs> mm. But they came really close to fooling me on that one, so props on that. Um, I think it would have been smarter uh, to wait until the verdict before staging the daring escape, but it was a clever escape plan. Um, upon doing a bit of reading, um, though, I came to understand why Edgen did it that way. There is no proper road to Revel's End, uh, canonically, and the most reliable way in and out is either by sea or air. So while it's not an elegant solution, it does make sense. Now, speaking of Edgen Darvis, I have something I want to bring up about him. He's supposed to be a bard in theory, but we don't ever see it in practice. We know that Edgen was a harper, and, and they often tend to be bards, and, and we see him tearing his instrument around. Uh, we even see him uh, play a little bit. You'd think that his instrument would be a spell-casting focus, since bards need a musical instrument to cast spells. But here's the thing. Edgen never uh, does any magic, despite supposedly being a bard. And the weird thing is, I've seen his official character stat block, and he does have spells listed. In, including disguise self and charm person but he never uses them in the movie even when he probably should now if you want an example of what a bard looks like uh, and how a bard really would act watch a uh, scanlan shorthalt from vox machina that guy is always casting spells with his instruments um i even go so far as to say that scanlan is the definitive example of how to play a bard 
But Edgen never does any of that, preferring to leave the magic to the sorcerer. And so he acts more like a rogue than a bard. You know, that is true. Um, Edgen never used spells. And there definitely would have been a couple of great times to use disguise self or, or charm a person. And, and he just didn't do it. Um, he's like a rogue that dipped a level in bard. <laughs> as far as Scanlan goes, you are right. He is how I would see the typical bard. Uh, but I believe you had something to say about one of the fellowship of the D20, didn't you? I do indeed. Uh, now, interestingly enough, our D&D party has the reverse of Edgen. A thief who acts more like a bard, except without the spells. Cirrus <laughs> Darkstar, uh, played by our friend Greg, is a soul knife rogue, which means that he has psychic powers that he uses along with his roguery. Um, he tends to play up his charisma, and he acts as our party's face, playing the part of the traveling bard. But even with that, he still casts spells more frequently than Edgen, because Cirrus at least uses, uses his mage hand spell all the time, especially when tricking for traps. Looks clear, <laughs> as our DMs would say. <laughs> <laughs> plus, plus back back in Pandolin and, and even in Red Large, uh, Cirrus has been known to bust out his loot to comfort people or, or even amuse small children, but he does that without magic. So there is definitely a lot of bard in there, even if it's is enchanting music rather than casting spells with his music. Uh, but since we've talked about Edgen, we have to talk about his longest companion, Holga Kilgore. Uh, Holga is from the Elk tribe of the Uthgard. Uh, my character, Bjorn, was raised by the Blue Bear tribe of the Uthgard. Granted, it was a different tribe, but they are all bonded uh, by their chieftain hero turned deity, Uthgar. As a culture, if you take out the raiding aspects, the Uthgard are somewhere between the Yauta and Klingons, but with a strong bond to both nature and the natural order. In regards to Holga, though, I thought that sharing some of the things about her tribe might shed some light on her character. The 11 Uthgart tribes are human barbarian tribes, and each one is tied to their own distinct totem animal. Each one of these animals has been defeated by their god, Uthgar, before he ascended, and now represents an aspect of his nature. They individually serve as med mediators between Uthgar and the 11 tribes. Like Holga, the Uthgard often had black hair, but in Holga's case, her eyes are dark brown and not blue, as is more typical of the Uthgard. The Uthgard are predominantly larger than most other humans and sought to hone their bodies to physical perfection. At five foot five, Holga was not tall, but she definitely honed her body to perfection. I mean, that woman was buff as hell. That she is, and uh, you can't argue that uh, Michelle uh, Rodriguez takes care of herself. Um, I'll admit to not being as up on barbarians in the Forgotten Realms as you are, but and that's just because the class was never called out to me that much as a player. Uh, what I know about barbarians mainly comes from Wolfgar from the Dristo Urden books and Minsk from Baldur's Gate. So all that uh, is really cool to know, and I feel like they made a good move in casting Michelle Rodriguez to play Holga, even if she doesn't look like a typical Uthgar. They definitely play her effectively as a barbarian. I mean, we do see her raging and being a good frontline tank for her party. Uh, even in her intro in the prison, where she casually beats the crap out of an orc, is, is badass. At the same time, she's not the stereotypical dumb barbarian either, um, as she does pull off some clever tricks, including the scene where she took the axe from the Neverwinter Guard. But I think you had more to add about the Oath Guard, Mike? I, I do, Steve. Um, let's get into the tribal stuff with the Oath Guard. As I said before, there are 11 tribes, but we're, we're here to talk about the Elk Tribe right now. Uh, they were raiders and had a reputation for being arrogant, ill-tempered, and self-indulgent. 
even more so than any other tribe of the youth guard. Uh, but they did not always raid out of need. They would raid small villages and lightly defended caravans off the main roads just for the fun of it. They were not to be trusted either. They would take prisoners and the ransom money from the families and then sell the prisoners into slavery anyway. Um, it was not long before they rejected all aspects of civilized society. They avoided cities and towns because their numbers were too few. Holga mentions that her tribe would have been in the Evermores, and they would have. Uh, they would hire themselves out as guides through there, and they were quite skilled at dealing with the dangers the Evermores presented. The Elk tribe also has something in common with the Yaucha we talked about in the last episode. Just as a young Yaucha must be blooded by defeating their ritual enemy, the Xenomorphs, so too must a young Elk tribe Uthgard uh, face and defeat one of the Ancient Ones in a ritual hunt. However, I do not know of any laws or customs that forbid someone from the Elk tribe from marrying an outsider, at least not on a level that would banish someone from the tribe. I, I think that may have just been a movie thing. I, I wouldn't be surprised if that was the case. They do tend to get things wrong here and there in the film, and I know that I have quite a number of points that I found to be uh, inaccurate to the game. But let's talk about one notable inaccuracy they did with the Druid class. Mike, uh, would you care to explain where they went wrong with Druids in the movie? I'd be glad to. Um, one ability that was a huge controversy when the Honor Among Thieves trailer first came out was that the tiefling druid Doric wild-shaped into an owlbear. The issue being that 5th edition wild shape rules say that you can use your action to magically assume the shape of a beast that you have seen before, and an owlbear is a monstrosity and not a beast. Uh, but I have one word for you. Homebrew. Homebrew is when the DM makes a ruling based on how they think it should work rather than how the rules say it should work. And that is just playing D&D. &D. Uh, while there are rules and we try to stick to them, uh, the final word in a D&D &D game is given by the DM, period. All of that to say that the DM could have simply ruled that owlbears in the Forgotten Realms were not monstrosities but beasts or, or some other homebrew. And that's, that's, that's something that is particularly cool about the game. Even with all of the detailed world building and intricate and complex rule systems in place, your D&D &D group can make theirs work uh, by tweaking little things and the game for and it is better for it. However, Doric wild shapes over and over again at the blink of an eye, not twice like in 5e wild shape. A player can then revert back to normal using a bonus action or stay in that form for a number of hours based on half their druid level. So if your druid level is two, you can stay in that wild shape for an hour. What's more is that you have to rest before you can do this again. A druid would have to be an arch druid. That means 20th level to, to do unlimited wild shapes. And I do not think that Doric was an arch druid, uh, but maybe that's how they were playing it. Granted, it made the movie fun and exciting either way. Uh, but I don't want people watching Honor um, Among Thieves and then thinking Wild Shape works like that. Uh, but what do you think about that Wild Shape stuff, Steve? Uh, does it really matter for the movie? And, and am I right that new players should be told that as, that isn't how it works? Now, before I get into that question, let me address uh, Doric specifically. No, there's no way that she's an arch druid. Uh, according to her stat block, she's very probably a 16th level druid, at least going by her uh, hit dice. The Albear ability is listed in her stat block, but it's not something that a typical druid of her level should be able to do. So I have to agree that this is something they gave her for the movie, uh, though I wish they had explained it in some way. I mean, just say that she has a magic item or something that allows her to do this and move on. Uh, does it matter for the movie? Not if you have no intention of ever playing the game. I mean, it looks cool and it makes for some fun moments. 
But I do think players should know that Wild Shape does not work that way, at least not under uh, rules as written or raw for short. I'm down for the homebrew and rules changes depending on what works for the dungeon master and the party, and that's fine. That said, it's kind of like world building as a writer. You have to know what the rules are in order to change or break them like that. Um, I, I'll just say that if you're a new player and want to get into the game because you love the movie, look into the official rules first and don't go buy everything that you see in the film. Learn the rules, understand how they work or don't first, and then figure out how to make changes if that's your thing. I, I would have to agree with all of that. Uh, Steve and I share the belief that knowing the rules first is a better way uh, to know what homebrews will work and which ones will not. Uh, the next thing I wanted to talk about is a complaint that I don't personally understand. People freaked out that Dork was a tiefling that had neither red nor blue skin. But here's a direct quote from D&D 5e. Tiefling skin tones cover the full range of human colorization. Uh, but also include various shades of red. Uh, what is weird is that she really only had the horns to identify her as a tiefling. Um, half human or not, she is part infernal. I think there should have at least been some kind of tail on her. Uh, but it would seem human genes are somehow more dominant. Uh, whatever. Uh, it's a small issue. Uh, did you have any issues with Doric's appearance in the film, Steve? And sub-question, did you notice she said she was born from humans as a tiefling? I've actually played a tiefling bard named uh, Devlin, so I'm down for answering this one. No, I don't think it matters that Doric looks mostly human aside from the horns. As you mentioned, the official rules allow you to make a tiefling look more or less however you want. I've seen tieflings with other colors like purple and such, and that's fine. If you want a tiefling who looks like Nightcrawler, go for it. Um, there's also nothing wrong with making her look mostly human. Um, with Devlin, I went for standard red because I wanted to subvert the old school devil look with the red skin, the horns, and the black beard. I just made him look more like a musketeer, and I designed him to be a fun-loving character who seeks truth and beauty. But that and, was a stylistic. I just want to say that that was a great character, by the way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I love playing him. I would love to play him again. But uh, that was a stylistic choice that was within the rules um, when I came up with him. And I think Dork is the same. Uh, this is also not the first tiefling that we've seen that looks mostly human. In the game Planescape Torment, one of the main characters is a tiefling rogue named Anna, and she looks even more human than Dork does. She's fair-skinned, and the only sign of her infernal heritage is her demonic tail. I think that's a fair interpretation of a tinkling, and I'm fine with it. I guess I guess maybe it was my own headcanon that, that, that might have been messing me up. I, I imagine infernal genes to be rather dominant with all of the pictures in the player's handbook. Uh, but you bring up a good point here, and that is using the D&D core rulebooks and expansions as a foundation and within the guidelines of your DM. Imagination is where this game is played, and you can do anything you want within that frame. Like, I play a half-orc named Obak uh, in one of the Fellowship of the D20 side games. Uh, mm -hmm. The thing is, orcs are typically aligned evil and I play him as an orc who wanted to do good uh, make your characters like you want to make them is what I mean but I interrupted you there Steve uh, I believe you had a bit more to say yeah but I will say that you're exactly right about being able to reinterpret the lore for your character that's part of the fun as to your second question um, I did vaguely remember the line and she was born from humans as a tiefling but it wasn't like a line that I deeply focused on uh, at the time but I think that's pretty clear if you look at Doric. She does look very noticeably human, so probably there's more human in her than demon. Her struggle is interesting because she distrusts humans because of what she's dealt with, also be because she was raised by wood elves. But at the same time, uh, she is part human herself. 
So there's this internal division between these different sides of herself that she's trying to balance out, which she does manage by the end of the film. I would say that is true of Doric character. I, I think that when her party was responsible for setting things right on the Sword Coast, her worldview was put back together, and in part because of humans. Uh, I think that more specifically because her own personal mission of making the Emerald Enclave an officially recognized and supported member of the Five Factions uh, again was completed and, and could not have been done without humans in their party and Lord Never Ember. Uh, so that fits. Uh, but I have a different angle I was wanting to talk about there. I was trying to figure out how a tiefling could be born of two human parents. Um, is that possible or does that not say that at least one of her parents were not as human as they claimed? Yeah, it's probably the latter. I mean, though I don't see why it wouldn't be possible in theory. Sometimes traits skip a generation, and they aren't noticeable until their children are born. We also don't know how far Doric's fiend ancestry goes back in her bloodline. Maybe it goes back a few generations. Um, there could have been a couple generations that seemed completely human, and then Doric just suddenly sprouted horns. It's explainable, at least. Um, but uh, let's move on with that. So here's another scene that might have struck some people who know the rules. When the party goes into the Underdark, there's a group of intellect devourers that goes right past them. The paladin Zank uh, points out that intellective hours are draw to intelligence. Now, it's pretty clear that this scene is set up as a joke. And I admit that I laughed, even though it seemed off to me. But the lore is wrong here. I mean, an intellective hour should be able to sense anyone with an intelligence of three or higher that's within 300 feet of it. Nobody in the party has an intelligence that low. <laughs> There's, there is a spell called Mind Blank that would keep the creatures from noticing them, but I didn't see Simon cast it. Now, it is true that nobody in this party has an intelligence-based class, like a wizard or an artificer. Doric as a druid is a wisdom-based character, and Elgin, Simon, and Zank all have charisma classes. Um, but even so, I don't think it would stop a group of intellect devourers from chomping down on them. So it is technically wrong in terms of the lore, but it was funny, so I can let it go. It's real funny. Uh, how did you feel about it, Mike? I will admit that I have never come across those creatures and was not at all familiar with them. Uh, when I saw it, I thought it was because they're classes like you mentioned. Uh, but but this was this was one of those things that, that was changed for the good of the moment, and, and I can totally get down with that. Uh, that Edgen was so offended was pretty funny. <laughs> I can't help but think about earlier in the film when Doric was asking Edgen about what he does and how he is even useful to the party after he made the plan. I mean, his ego was already a little bruised in that department. <laughs> but I would like to talk about a particular fight scene with Bjorn's future wife, Holga Kilgore. Holga Kilgore's fight in the forge at the cast at Castle Neverember is a big old nod to 2018's God of War and God of War Ragnarok. Um, in that fight, Holga uses an axe, red hot chains, a spear, a bow, and a shield, all of which were used by Kratos himself and also his son, Atreus, a.k.a. Loki, albeit by different names uh, and powers. Uh, these weapons are the Leviathan Axe, the Blades of Chaos, a.k.a. the Red Hot Chains, uh, the Draupnir Spear, made by Odin's Ring, and the Talonbow and the Guardian Shield. As a big God of War fan, I just really appreciated all of that. You know, I wouldn't be surprised if either Daly or Goldstein is a gamer, because I honestly didn't notice that until you pointed it out. Though I like Kratos, I've only played a fair amount of the 2018 uh, God of War, as well as a little bit from the earlier games. Still, I can't deny that Kratos is a great influence on a barbarian character, so points of the film for that. Also, I really wouldn't be surprised if Holga has great weapon mastery as a feat, much as like Bjorn does. Hell yeah. 
Hell yeah. See, there's a reason. Bjorn's going to marry her eventually. Um, it's <laughs> certainly possible. Uh, she does use her axe with both hands, and she is able to make several effective attacks in a row, which fits with how we homebrewed it. Um, I feel like I should clarify what Steve and I are referring to, however. Characters get things called feats that represent a talent or an area of expertise that gives a character special capabilities. Things like Great Weapon Master. With this feat, Holga and Bjorn have learned to use the weight of our two-handed weapons to our advantage by letting the momentum empower our strikes. This gives us extra attacks and a potential to do 10 more points of damage if we sacrifice some of our attack roll. Uh, but with that out of the way, I think there was something about the High Sun games that you wanted to mention. Wasn't there, Steve? There is. Uh, so in the High Sun games, they throw out a pretty huge Easter egg. Um, they basically adapted most of the characters from the Dungeons & Dragons animated show from 1983. This includes the main party from that show, including Hank the Ranger, Diana the Acrobat, Eric the Cavalier, Sheila the Thief, Presto the Magician, and Bobby the Barbarian. Now, to be clear, canonically, the animated show characters have nothing to do with the Forgotten Realms, and the movie doesn't really reflect who the characters are in the cartoon. But what's also interesting is that the party member of Edkin's crew have names with the first letters that echo the animated series group, Holga, Doric, Edgen, and Simon. As a final note, I'll also add that if you really want to see a cool live-action version of the animated D&D characters, there's a Brazilian car commercial that gets it just right. You can find it on YouTube if you search for it. To be fair, Honor Among Thieves is fine as a cool nod to them, but the commercial is much more accurate to the cartoon. But what did you think of their appearance, Mike? I have to be honest about something. Uh, my dad was one of those parents caught up in the whole satanic panic thing of the 80s. And of course, Dungeons and Dragons was part of that hysteria as well. Consequently, if they were conjuring demons and using witchcraft in D&D, &D, then the cartoon might just make me a Satanist if I watched it. So uh, I wasn't allowed to. Uh, yeah. And, and yes, this is the same father who had me watch A Nightmare on Elm Street around the same time. What can I say? He's a complicated guy. Uh, but all of that to say, while I appreciated the nod to the fans, uh, you know, it, it was it was a nice old school classic nod. It, it was just not one that I enjoyed myself. Uh, but there was something I did enjoy at the end there. That was, of course, the huge fight with what is referred to in the game as the BBEG, or rather the big bad evil guy. Or in this case, I suppose it's the big bad evil girl, Sophina, a red wizard of Thay. This battle was epic and completely delivered on the hard-fought action. I even appreciated their attention to game mechanics during the fight, like Sophina uh, losing concentration for her animate object spell at which she was attacked, which is technically only supposed to work for a minute. And the stone dragon immediately stops moving, preventing it from crushing Edgen's skull in its jaws. That was exactly like how it is in the game. Uh, but we will get into that in more detail later when we talk about the spells in the movie. Uh, but what about you, Steve? Did you have any thoughts on the big battle at the end with Sophina and Forge with Fitzwilliam? Sure, but I'll also add briefly that there's an even bigger villain behind both of them, and that is Zastam, who is a powerful undead lich and the ruler of the Red Wizards of Thay. Tam is actually a major character from Realm's War and a pretty important villain to use here. In practice, I'd say even Safina is more like the Darth Vader of the movie, with Tam clearly set up as a Palpatine figure. The battle was really well handled uh, for the most part, I thought. Um, I did wonder if they gave Safina more high-level spell slots than they, she probably would have had in the game, but she absolutely is a believable threat. In a protracted spell battle, she's clearly got the advantage over the entire party. But I like that they got smart by tricking her 
and then using the anti-magic shackles to shut off her spell casting. That was a clever move, and it seemed like the most credible way for the party to do when he got a win against a very powerful opponent. As to Forge, uh, my initial thought was that he was clearly meant to be a dark uh, version of Edgen, a charming narcissist who was only out for himself and would throw anyone under the bus if it meant that he get out of head. Uh, they also have the personal stake because they both want the kid. So that's a great conflict that they built with him. Um, I feel like Forge utterly gets his due in the end, and it was so satisfying to see him get that come up that's after his betrayal. Um, also, I have to add as an aside that they play Forge as the evil usurper and Daggle Never Ember as the good rightful ruler. Yes. Uh, in our game, uh, Daggle was a really bad guy who was prepared to start a war and Sivo roll over in a small village named Fandolin for his own benefit. But at least he's not working for the Red Wizards, I guess. Still, I, I feel bad for the people of Neverwinter because no matter who wins, they get getting ruled over by the most corrupt and awful people. I honestly had to laugh at the way Daggle was written in this film after dealing with him in Lost Minds of Vandelver. But I think there was something you noticed as well, Mike. Uh, there is, but first I would like to comment on what you said there. As a guy who was with you on that adventure, I can say that the portrayal of Lord Never Ember felt a bit off for me as well. Uh, but not knowing much about Lord Never Ember, uh, beyond our party's experience with him, I wrote it off as either a DM interpretation on Neff's part in our game or, or a movie inter interpretation. Uh, but, but let's move on. Um, I did not catch this my first time through in the movie, but in the flashback scene, we see Edgen and his forever unnamed wife together in their room uh, and that scene Edgen is trying to catch a dragonfly and what's more is that he was afraid of it Edgen agreed to run a heist on Corrin's Keep which even for a thief like him was pushing it uh, as Corrin's Keep was a Harper stronghold um, he may have given up his vows but that bothered him he was willing to do it though to get the tablet of reawakening uh, not to bring back Kara's mother but to bring back his best friend his wife it took two years in Revel's End to make him realize that he had lost sight of his daughter in his grief. All of that to say that Edgen was desperately clinging on to his wife long after her death, and it cost him everything. So when Holga died after the battle with Safina and that dragonfly landed on Edgen's arm, he remembered his wife's words about trying to catch the dragonfly, which was a metaphor for his uh, wife. Quit trying to catch it. Just let it go, she said. And he saw that he was with his new family. And when you combine that moment with Holga's ex, Marleman, telling her that when she left, uh, he lost his family and he's been fortunate enough to find another one. And he wishes nothing less for Holga to find another family as well after being kicked out of the Uthgart tribe. And the moment brings it all together. What did you think of that ending scene there? I thought it was clear what they, that they, what they were aiming for there when I watched it the first time. I knew the Let It Go flashback was probably going to factor into Ed's uh, character arc somewhere. So it did stick in my mind. And when Edkin admits towards the end that he was trying to get the tablet to raise his wife out of his own pain and grief, the pieces clicked into place for me at that point. Um, Edkin's arc was about letting go of the past, becoming again the man that he was as a harper, and trying uh, again to be a responsible father. So when uh, Holga died at the end of the battle, I felt pretty sure that they were going to use the tablet to bring her back. It's telegraphed, but it's an earned ending, and it's, we're more invested in Holga because we spend time with her in the film. So that ending worked for me. 
That's fair. Um, I actually knew about the let it go thing the first time through. Actually, it was the quit trying to catch it part that really slipped by me. Edgin's pursuit of getting his wife back almost made him let the family he had at that moment go. He didn't need to keep reaching for it. It was already there. That's why Edgin called them his people. Uh, but let's switch gears over to talking about the setting of the movie. Honor Among Thieves is set in the Forgotten Realms, a.k.a. The Realms, which is a campaign setting. That basically means it's the world the adventure you're playing is set in. Game designer Ed Greenwood created Forgotten Realms back in 1967 as a setting for his childhood stories. In 1975, Greenwood started playing D&D but really became an enthusiast uh, with the release of Advanced Dungeons and Dragons in 1978. It was then that he used his old Forgotten Realms setting as the setting for his AD&D campaign, starting out first with Waterdeep. His players loved the detail and lived in feel of the Forgotten Realms, and soon he was publishing detailed articles in the Dragon magazine elaborating on the setting. While this was going on, Greyhawk remained the default setting for D&D. But in 1986, TSR started looking for a new default setting for their upcoming second edition of AD&D, and it was those articles in the Dragon magazine that got TSR looking to Greenwood's way. By 1987, the very first Forgotten Realms game products were released, and by 1989, when AD&D second edition came out, Forgotten Realms was the new default setting for Dungeons & Dragons and modules or adventures and have been made uh, for the setting ever since. In fact, the setting has since been used in other mediums like novels by authors such as R.A. Salvatore, video games including 1988's Pool of Radiance, 1991's Eye of the Beholder, 2000's Icewind Dale, and the Neverwinter Nights and Baldur's Gate series, not to mention numerous comics and films including Honor Among Thieves, obviously. Uh, but I believe there were some specifics about the Forgotten Realms that you wanted to talk talk about, weren't there, Steve? There are, but before I get into them, I think it's important to point out why the realms work so well for tabletop adventures. One of the reasons that Forgotten Realms is such a popular setting for D&D campaigns is that it's built a bit differently from uh, other fantasy worlds. With a lot of fantasy novels, like, say, Lord of the Rings, there's a specific story at the center of it, even though there might be supporting lore that stretches back in time a long time. This is also true with something like Dragonlance, which is heavily built around the heroes of the lance, and the war between the gods Paladin and uh, Tachesis. Ravenloft is the home of gothic horror in D&D, but there's no question that Strahd von Zarevich, who, by the way, is basically D&D's Dracula, is at the center of that setting. Now, this is not true of the Forgotten Realms. There are definitely central characters that drive certain stories. Uh, Drist Orden, uh, Elminster Almar, the Seven Sisters, Erlen Moonblade, and, and many, many others, but they don't drive the entire setting. And the world of Toril is so vast that no single event or set of characters dominates the entire setting. The world is huge with many different complex settings, including the city of Waterdeep, the northern region of Icewind Dale, the library of Candlekeep, the Moonshay Islands, or the dwarven uh, kingdoms of Mithril Hall and Gauntlebrim. Even some of the small towns are usually well fleshed out and feel like a part of that world, uh, without the entire story being dependent on a single character or a narrative. That allows for players to tell their own stories anywhere in Faerun, without feeling like they belong in someone else's story. There is a complex history within the realms and many different things that drive events. I can't even list them all because there runs that deep. Suffice it to say, you have dead civilizations and lost cities of magic. There are many different kinds of dragons and an entire cult that worships undead dragons. You, can, you can't trip over a rock in Faerun 
without running into a lost dwarven tomb or fortress. Just look at our recent campaign. You'll find tons of them. And that's just the surface world of Faerun. There's a deep underground region known as the Underdark, which the movie only hints at, where some of the truly terrible creatures reside, like Mind Flayers or what are called Illithids, the Drow or the Dark Elves, and, and many others. You also have major events like the Time of Troubles, where gods walk the earth in mortal avatars, and gods could even die permanently and sometimes did. There is room for anything to happen in the realms, and if it can happen, it probably has at some point. The realms are just that vast and that insane as a setting. There are many great characters you can meet, so many great places your party can go, and so much you can do in a game set in the realms. Uh, yeah, I hope to do as many as them as I can find, honestly. I, I love me some Forgotten Realms. Uh, but, you know, for all of the changes, homebrews, styles, and campaign settings, with the exception of Spelljammer, which we're not covering here today, the world in which D&D is played has remained one akin to medieval to gothic fantasy. Uh, fifth edition was no different in this respect. Forgotten Realms, which has become the default setting of most adventures, very much fits into a setting like that. But really, all of the settings are worlds in which multiple players from a group that is led through an adventure by the Dungeon Master, as Steve mentioned earlier. Uh, the Dungeon Master guides the story using his own creations or following a published adventure. Either way, it's a cooperative storytelling, and the way the players respond make each game a unique adventure. And that's really the beauty of the game. I mean, there's no right or wrong way to design your adventure or, or implement the rules. I mean, each table is going to be different. And much of the game is about who's sitting at the table. Each uh, DM may have their own homebrew rules, and each player might do their own character in a unique way. I've even played through the same adventure module more than once, and the way that the game played out was completely di different depending on uh, how it was handled. It's a very bottom-up type of game, uh, driven by DMs and by players, and I think that that sets tabletop RPGs apart from other kinds of games. I can easily see an adventure going entirely differently based on the players and the DM playing the game. If I'm honest, it reminds me of those old choose-your-own-adventure books where the same story could turn out a number of ways. Uh, but bringing this back to the Forgotten Realms, uh, I really love the setting. One could easily spend years exploring the width and depth of the Forgotten Realms and playing the adventures that are set in it. Uh, the Fellowship of the D20 is averaging around 22, four to five hour sessions per adventure. Uh, just to give you an idea, uh, and that is to say nothing of all the written material about the, the realms itself. Uh, but I have a question, Steve. Uh, with the vastness of the Forgotten Realms and all the peoples within it, who are some of the major characters at the center of it all? There are quite a few, but let's start with the literal granddaddy of them all. The biggest one easily is Elminster the Sage, and he can be said to be the realm's answer to Gandalf. And note that Elminster looks nothing like his descendant Simon, he has that typical white-bearded old wizard look uh, that you would expect of a Gandalf type. Um, all, Elminster Almar is the creation of Ed Greenwood. If I, and if I'm honest, Elminster kind of looks like Ed Greenwood now. Uh, he, he's, a good, he's the good wizard who guides the heroes as needed, though he's also been featured in his own set of novels, and, and they're not bad. At the same time, there is a reason why Simon the Sorcerer looks nothing like Elminster. That is because Elminster is an immortal who has lived for over 1,200 years and Simon is his direct descendant. Originally, um, Elminster was the last prince of a fallen kingdom, and after its fall, he later devoted his life to magic. His immortality comes from Mistra, the goddess of magic, who selected him as uh, one of her chosen. Uh, the gods occasionally uh, will choose mortals as their champions, and Elminster is uh, Mistra's favorite among all of her chosen. 
As a chosen of Mistra, uh, Elminster bears a fraction of the goddess's power, which gives him his immortality and fuels his spellcasting. He's also one of the world's primary defenders, often challenging the epic-level magical threats across Faerun. But sometimes he gets involved in small ways, uh, giving guidance to heroes while keeping his own interference uh, limited. You see this in the original Baldur's Gate, where Elminster points the adventurers in the direction that they need to go without ever mentioning his name, but you know it's him. He can leave as large or as small footprint as he needs to. That gives uh, DMs a good amount of flexibility in using him as a campaign if they ever wish to, while also allowing him to work as a novel character. You know, speaking of Simon, Elminster is human and Simon is a half-elf. But I don't think he's just any old half-elf. I think his father or mother was a sun elf, the high elves of the Forgotten Realms, and I think this because of the magic benefits. Uh, your standard half-elf has no particular magic benefits, but a high elf in half-elf's lineage automatically comes with magical skills. Um, I say in their lineage because a high elf would never stoop so low as to be with a human. High elves consider themselves better than everyone, even other elves, uh, but that isn't my point. Uh, the High Elves have a keen mind and a mastery of at least the basics of magic from the get-go. Also, game mechanic-wise, a Half-Elf of Moon Elf or Sun Elf descent can forego skill versatility and instead choose the High Elf's cantrip, which, while only being a level zero spell, is still another spell that a Half-Elf of, of Sun Elf descent uh, could cast. Simon does seem to know at least the basics of magic and even have spells that he can cast that he does not fully understand. I think that Simon has Elminster and Sun Elf in his lineage, and that is why he can do what he does. Uh, what do you think of that, Steve? That's an interesting theory, and it sounds like it could be a plausible one. Uh, but it's equally possible that the magic we see comes from a sorceress lineage. And sorcerers start out with four cantrips. I'm not saying you're wrong, just that there are other possible explanations. Um, I'll even throw in a weird thing from St Simon's stat block. He knows the draconic language. Um, draconic sorcerers are descended from dragons, and they start out knowing draconic at first level. I'm not saying that Simon has a dragon ancestor as well, but I'm also not not saying that either. Um, now, I want to turn our attention to one of my favorite fantasy heroes, and that is Dristo Erden, the heroic drow ranger. Drist is the creation of writer R.A. Salvatore, and for the most part, Salvatore has written the definitive war when it comes to the Dark Elves of Toril. Uh, much of that comes from his novels, including the Dark Elf Trilogy, which is pretty much the definitive when it comes to Drist and the drow city of Menza Baron Zahn. Uh, Salvatore also created the Companions of the Hall, Drist, the Dwarf King Bruinor, Bruinor's adopted human daughter Cadibree, the Halfling Rogue Regis, and the Barbarian Wolfgar. And yes, for those in the know, that is a Beowulf reference. Um, Salvatore is very much a literary studies uh, major. The uh, interesting thing about Drist is that he became the main hero pretty much by accident, uh, which is something I can relate to because something similar happened to me with Blitz. When Salvatore created the Companions of the Hall, his idea was that the main hero was going to be Wolfgar. Drist was originally intended as Wolfgar's mentor and sidekick. And while Wolfgar's not a bad character, let's face it, he wasn't nearly as interesting as Drist. Um, Salvatore eventually realized this, and though he'd write later books focusing on Wolfgar, he decided midway through uh, the Icewind Dale trilogy that Drist had to be the protagonist of the series. So that's when he, the books really took off. Eventually, Drist proved so popular that even some of his villains spun off briefly on their own, like Jarl Axel and uh, Artemis and Trary. And, and by the way, their sellsword novels that they're both in are awesome. 
the story of Tristo Erden is that he was the youngest son of a minor drow house in the city of uh, Menza Berenzon. His mother was the matron mother of House Do Erden, and his father was Zachnafane, the house weapon master. Uh, Drist uh, took much more after his father, learning the ways of the sword and taking on Zachnafane's re rebellious streak against uh, the other drow. The problem is that the drow of the Underdark are a corrupt matriarchy ruled by the evil priestesses that serve Lull, the uh, Spider Queen. Uh, Drist resisted the corruption within drow society, uh, rejected Lull, and through a series of events, he decides to rebel from the drow and flee to the surface. When Drist finally reaches the surface, he becomes a ranger and tries to fit in among surface people. However, because he's a drow and servicers have suffered from drow raids, Drist has to spend years earning the trust and respect of surface people, which he does through numerous acts of heroism. Um, I, as a I, final just to, on, I just have to comment mm -hmm. on something yeah. really there. Yeah, uh, I'm, yeah. I'm really, I'm really seeing Eleuthria's roots there, um, in in, mm -hmm. in Drist with that description. I, I, yeah. I, 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 did, I, I hadn't really seen that so clearly before. I just wanted to point that out. Yeah, I, and I was trying to make her at least different enough from Drist in, in some respects. So yeah, I, I, yeah, I told you where you're coming from. Uh, she, he was an influence. As a final note on Drist, though, um, here's an interesting fact about the movie. Uh, Jeremy Latcham, a producer on Honor Among Thieves, said that the Zank role was originally intended to be cast as Drist. And if Drist, if Zank is based on Drist, that suddenly makes a lot of sense of some of the questions that I had about him. Zank claims to be an oath of the Ancients Paladin, but he acts more like a Crown Paladin, uh, think Captain America, or a Devotion Paladin, which is kind of like your classical Paladin, your Lancelot, uh, your Galahads. Um, Ancients Paladins are typically neutral good, uh, focusing on the good above all else. So while an Ancients Paladin would inspire uh, Edgen to do the, the heroic thing, stealing from a corrupt government in league with the Red Wizards would probably not violate his oath. <laughs> so I don't get why Zank would be so bothered by that. But if Zank was originally meant to be Trist, that explains all those questions. Um, I knew there was a reason why I liked Zank as much as I did. <laughs> but um, let's get into another major part of the realm setting, which is the factions. Uh, Mike, do you want to get into that? I sure do, Steve. But first, I want to say thank you for breaking down Drist for us like that. Um, I have the comics version of The Legend of Drist, Homeland and Exile, that I'm going to have to dig dig up after, after hearing all that. Uh, but you're right. I, I do want to get into the five factions of the Forgotten Realms. Uh, many but not all characters created in the Forgotten Realm setting, especially those for organized D&D play, belong to or are at least associated with one of the five factions that have risen to prominence in the realms. Um, each faction has its own motivations, goals, and philosophies about life and the world. Some are more heroic than others, uh, to put it politely. <laughs> but all five will band together in times of trouble to fight off major threats. These five factions are the Order of the Gauntlet, which is an order of paladins, monks, and clerics dedicated to going to the darkest and most evil places there are to destroy evil, and they do it without hesitation. There are the Zentarim as well, who work as bodyguards, caravan escorts, and even executioners, as we saw in Honor Among Thieves. If you missed it, that was a Zentarim agent that was going to kill Holga and Edgen. The Zentarim are the best warriors that money can buy, and they spare no expense on making sure they have the best armor and weapons available. That is why Holga wanted his battle axe. It also says something about Holga's skill as a warrior, that she could so easily dispatch a Zentarim agent. Uh, but moving on to the last three, which I'm going to be go into more detail on as they are in the movie, there is the Emerald Enclave, the Lord's Alliance, and the Harpers. To quote our favorite rogue series, 
he wasn't such a bad guy for a Zent. <laughs> I, I do want to add a bit more on the Zentarum, though. Um, the Zentarum are not quite so bad now, but they started off as a darker faction uh, founded and led by an evil wizard named Manchun. Manchun is Elminster's arch nemesis, so you can probably guess how powerful that guy is. Um, they were also in league with other evil factions like clerics of the evil god Bane. Later, the Zentarum were torn apart by infighting, and Manchun was driven out of the organization and seemingly killed, though he came back later in a clone body. Now, the current Zentarum are a powerful criminal organization, and they can be ruthless, but they're not huge, a huge threat to the realms in the way they once were when Manchun was in charge. They're now mainly about turning a profit above all else. But you can have your characters join, join the Zentarum if you want. Um, they're meant to be a faction designed for more chaotic and evil-aligned players. But let's get into the other factions that we see in the movie. That sounds like a good idea, Steve. Uh, the first of the five factions we run into in the movie is the Lord's Alliance up north and Rebels in prison in Icewind Dale in the north. Uh, that is true to D&D's uh, Faroon. Uh, the Lord's Alliance is primarily a northern faction made up of various lords and rulers from across the Sword Coast, but certain larger cities like Waterdeep, Silvery Moon, and Neverwinter tend to dominate the coalition. Uh, they are all bound together under the belief that they are stronger together, and that unity will keep the evils of the uncivilized away from their territories. Uh, but when not needed to work, uh, the various lords focus on their own cities and towns. Uh, there are many agents of the Lord's Alliance, though. Uh, these agents come in all shapes, sizes, and many classes, but they all have a few things in common. Agents of the Lord's Alliance are absolutely loyal to their lords, and it is their purpose to ensure the safety and prosperity of civilized Faroon by standing united against the evil forces that threaten civilization, which also means, as you saw in the film, certain penal and law enforcement responsibilities. This is why they must be expert fighters, stealthy and observant. Uh, they fight proudly for their lords, what they stand for, and the glory and security of their people. Uh, but none of that means that the cities and towns of the Lord's Alliance are not competitive with each other. They are, as are their agents, but there is still mutual support and balance uh, to such competitiveness and dis diplomacy. I can also tell you from in-game experience that you don't call the Lord's Alliance because your cat is stuck up in the tree or somebody stole your cart full of goods. That's small time for local law enforcement and you're not going to hear back from the Lord's Alliance. You call the Lord's Alliance when all the carts that are coming into the town are being raided and there's goblins and orcs killing people on the road like there was in our Lost Minds of Phandelver campaign. When Phandalin was in all of that trouble in our game, the Lord's Alliance sent one agent, one, and he ended up being killed by goblin arrows. Put simply, the Lord's Alliance is for major threats. Uh, pretty much. The Lord's Alliance is a loose confederacy of nations that act together for common defense. The modern equivalent would be something like NATO, Though, honestly, they have much more in common with the Delian League, which was an alliance of ancient Greek city-states that fought against the Persian Empire. Uh, regardless, alliance agents have a certain amount of flexibility to act in its member states, and often their work involves a certain amount of subterfuge. Mind that this is not always the case, and you do not have to play a Lord's Alliance operative as a spy. Although it's not played up as much um, in our current campaign, uh, my character Eleuthria is a Lord's Alliance agent. Not because she's hugely into the idea of law and order, though, and she doesn't do any spycraft. What's happened is that, that at the start of our current campaign, um, Eleuthria ended up replacing the Lord's Alliance agent in Vandalin. She now works directly for Lady Laurel Silverhand, uh, Waterdeep's uh, de facto ruler, who uh, also presides over the Alliance. 
Um, also, as an aside, uh, Leral is a chosen of Mistra like Elminster, and she is one of the seven sisters. She is a huge character in the realms. Anyway, Eleuthria accepted her post in the Alliance out of a sense of personal loyalty to Leral for things that she had done, and also um, as a duty to Phandalin, which she thinks of as an adopted home. In practice, I play Eleuthria as an emissary of Leral, and I don't often really bring up my faction membership that often. Sometimes I'll have her show her Alliance signet ring to get her in the trust of government officials, that kind of thing. It's a good thing to have uh, if you want access to certain people or to convince uh, people in authority to trust you or just, you know, get through uh, red tape. But there's also the risk that flashing around Alliance membership too openly will make an enemy of the wrong people. So I tend to keep uh, Luthier's membership on the down low most of the time. Still, it can be a good faction to play if your character leans in the direction of law and order. Honestly, from what I know of Agents of the Lord's Alliance, when not in major crisis, using their status uh, as members as a as a tool for personal advantage or profit sounds about right. But I will say that Eleuthria uses this with discretion and tact, much more honorably than some of the Lord's Alliance agents. Uh, but you also mentioned that there is a certain level of subterfuge involved, or at least there can be. My thought is that if you really want to play a spy on the side of the good guys, I suggest the Harpers, actually. Uh, but let's talk about the Harpers for a minute. If you're an innocent and you happen to find yourself in an oppressive situation, the Harpers are known for helping the weak and the poor all over the Forgotten Realms. However, they are not the charge in with an army and waste your foes kind of group. Nor are they really all that like what we see in the movie with the fantasy superheroing and stuff. Um, Harpers are a clandestine network of spellcasters and spies that pride themselves on being incorruptible defenders of the good. Uh, but they like to work behind the scenes and from the shadows like intelligence agents and are rarely seen doing what they do. Uh, but when they work, they can thwart tyrants, depose rulers, and head off any growing force that is rumored to have, in, have evil intent. The Harpers have their finger on the pulse of power in the realms and work tirelessly to even the odds for the downtrodden. Johnny Cash would be proud. Uh, but that is not all. The Harpers are always on the lookout for powerful items for the express purposes of keeping them out of the wrong hands. To this end, its agents use various guises and identities to gain access to carefully guarded secrets such as ancestral maps, buried cities, and mages' keeps. The Harpers work so well because they are a system of networks working together. Each individual member uses their own wits and extensive information uh, at networks to always be a step ahead of whatever might be happening. But friendship with the Harpers are still very strong. On, on the rare occasion that a Harper must act out in the open, rest assured that another Harper is watching from the shadows and ready to help their friend in a moment's notice. If you're not picking up on it, the Harpers are like the intelligence agency of the fair room, but not beholden to any government. Uh, to the Harpers, like all intelligence agencies, knowledge is power. Veteran members even have access to secret caches of knowledge stashed all over Faerun, along with trusted sources uh, stationed in every major town and city. Unfortunately, this is one area where the movie deviated pretty hard from the source material. But again, it worked for the story. Most deviations in the film tend to make things more fun, and fun was what they were going for. I, I know that having fun is certainly the goal of the Fellowship of the D20, and I think that is the case with a lot of D&D groups. Uh, so that in and of itself, while it's not letter of the law accurate, uh, it is true to playing the game. And that is pretty much the spirit of the Harpers, really. 
Um, though I'll be honest, the Harbors are a group I can't get entirely get my head around, though I want to like them in theory, and I can see the appeal of them. Uh, the Harpers are clearly designed for good aligned bards, rogues, and other classes that like to bend the rules to get the job done. That's cool, and, and there should be a group that works for the chaotic good type of character. It's the ex execution of them that I feel like I need to bring up. So they're in a, a clandestine group that exists to do good, okay? By what definition? Uh, dif different people see good differently, even though those who are well, genuinely well-intentioned. I, I get the idea of an independent organization that works outside the law. Uh, but exists to uphold his own brand of justice. I mean, that, that does make sense to me. But the idea of defending good is such a nebulous goal that I've always been a little bothered by the execution of that idea. Do you have any thoughts on that, Mike, or am I just missing something with this? Well, I mean, on a base level, there are certain things that we can, for the majority of people, agree that are wrong. Uh, most of us can agree that killing uh, is sometimes necessary, unfortunately, but that murder is wrong. I think that as most of us would not like to be stolen from, we can agree that stealing is wrong. At the same time, it is also wrong to put a person in a situation where they have to steal to survive because there are no other options. That leads into the next thing. One of the big things that the Harpers are against is oppression. The abuse of power is something we can all agree is wrong. I could go on, but the basic idea is that without getting into disputes about philosophy and the minutia of law, there are basic principles that do not take a law degree or a genius to figure out. Things like the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. Uh, but that does not mean that the few don't matter. Uh, there is a way that we want to be treated as people and, and as individuals that I personally believe believe are plain to see for most. So what do you think about that? Hmm. There are things that are extremely clear cut. This is true. At the same time, I think that Harpers need a clearer mission statement. The things you mentioned are probably why people like Cirrus have a problem with the Harpers. They're so focused on the greater good that they sometimes miss the small things and the people on the ground. There are times um, that the greater good should be the focus over the smaller problems, as our group uh, found out the hard way in one of our recent sessions. But uh, the whole debate brings me back to a line from Geralt of Rivia. Evil is evil. Greater, lesser, middling. It's all the same. If I have to choose between one evil and another, I'd rather not have to choose at all. Well, I'm not sure how much I agree with Geralt on that. I, I do understand the sentiment and the place that he's coming from. Anyway, uh, why don't we talk about the next faction we see in the film? That sounds like a good idea, Steve. Um, another group that is set up structurally similar to the Harpers is the Emerald Enclave. Uh, we saw Doric rescue a member of the Emerald Enclave from execution, and she herself was a member. Uh, like the Harper, individual members of the Emerald Enclave are all over Faerun, but their purpose is to restore and preserve the natural order, even as they root out and destroy all that is unnatural. They keep the elemental forces of the world in check and keep civilization and the wilderness from destroying one another. I don't know about you, but I am picturing a lot of rangers in the Emerald Enclave. <laughs> but because agents of the Emerald Enclave are often isolated from other members, they have learned to be fiercely self-reliant. Typically, they master certain fighting and survival skills, which they use to both help themselves and to help others in the wilderness to survive. A druid in the Emerald Enclave might volunteer to help a village prepare for a long, brutal winter. Both barbarians and druids of the Enclave, who live as hermits, have been known to appear out of nowhere to defend a village from marauding orcs. 
A ranger from the enclave might lead a caravan on a difficult mountain pass. They all have their own shtick, really. Uh, but there is a common belief among them that there is an ancient natural order that existed long before our intellectual concepts of it. To come into contact with that primal order is to touch the power that guides all life. Uh, think of the Emerald Enclaves as the tree huggers of the realm. <laughs> but, but, but yeah, that, that is basically what they're all about. Rangers and druids are very often involved with the Enclave, and some elves are involved with them as well, since elves are often connected to nature and natural forces. They're more typically uh, more of a neutral faction, not so much concerned with doing good or enforcing the law. Their interest is in preserving the natural order of things as a general rule, whichever side they have to take. Actually, our campaign does have a major character who's a member of the Emerald Enclave, and that is uh, Nem's character, Karlsruhe. Before he became our DM, uh, Nem played uh, Karlsruhe as an Eladrin nature cleric who dipped into Ranger. Eventually, Karlsruhe ended up joining the Enclave, and that led uh, into what happened to him in our current campaign, with our group trying to find him and rescue him uh, from some bad guys. So, but the Emerald Enclave is a great faction to join if you have a character who is nature-themed. Do you hear that, hippies? There is a place in D&D just for you. I bet they even make their own patchouli. Uh, they do bathe, though. I, I hope that's not an issue. <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't help myself after the tree huggers thing. But seriously, I, I do like that the different factions allow for a variety of characters. Uh, but I think we've covered the three factions that we see in the movie. So what do you say we move on to the magic that we see in the film, Steve? Let's do it. Uh, so let's get into magic and how we see it portrayed in Honor Among Thieves. According to Goldstein, quote, it makes storytelling nearly impossible if you can solve any problem with a magical spell, unquote. And while that's a fair point, I think the limitations of D&D do provide for that. Just keep track of their limited spell slots and you're good. Another thing that was on Goldstein's mind was how to show magic on the screen. They didn't want to, in his words, show, quote, two people standing there with their hands out and rays coming out of their hands, uh, unquote. And there, too, the game provides for that. Not all spells do that in practice. And, and there are many spells that, in fact, do not require somatic components uh, like, like what we've shown. Uh, Daly in Goldstein's answer was to lean into the D&D 5th edition magic system, quote, combining physical components and verbal spell casting to show a variety of magical effects on screen, unquote. In fact, uh, Justice Smith, who plays uh, Simon the Sorcerer, said that he and his choreographer tried to, quote, create unique gestures for each spell. Uh, unquote. To that end, they use things like sign language uh, to create the flavor of magic as a real language. Uh, they don't use material components like you sometimes see in D&D, but according to Raw, you don't really need to do that as long as you have a spellcasting focus. Um, and then that depends on classes. Uh, depending, Typically, it's a wand in the case of wizards or sorcerers. So all of that is game accurate from what I can tell. Of course, what surprised me a little bit when I looked at the stat blocks for the Honor Among Thieves characters is that the story is built as a high-level campaign. We're talking in the ranges of level 16 and 17 for the heroes, and the villains' levels are even higher, like 19. Um, I, I honestly would have guessed the heroes were somewhere in mid-game, but it seems not. Mike, did you want to get into the details on that? I do, but first I, I, have, a, I have a question. I know that magic in D&D works by, uh, I mean, actually manipulating the, the, the fabric of magic uh, in the world. Um, do, yeah. do the... Do the somatic components, um, say, manipulate those same, weave those same type of spells just with hand movements rather than uh, yeah. through magic manipulating it? 
Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, everything is all about touching the weave in various ways. So you can do it by, you know, doing the right uh, incantation. You can do it by waving your hands in the right way, or you can do it with material components. Um, so you, or, or alternately with a spell casting focus, like a wand or like a musical instrument for bards, that kind of thing. Uh, okay, okay. Um, so as we're getting into, oh, right. Uh, but as we're getting into the magic discussion, I feel like I should clear up a few things uh, to give you some perspective while we're talking about this. The first thing is that while there are home brews that go up beyond level 20, as far as published adventures go, level 20 is really the max a character can go. This is particularly relevant when we're talking about spell levels, as there is a formula to it. The formula is your spellcaster level times two, then minus one. As an example, if you wanted to cast a fifth level spell, your spellcaster would have to be a ninth level spellcaster. That's five times two, uh, which is 10 minus one equals nine. The highest magic levels go is ninth level. And to cast those, you would have to be a 17th level spellcaster. Uh, we've been playing our campaign for over a year and we're only at 10th level, if that adds some perspective on how long it takes. Also, there is just one more thing about the lingo we're going to use here when talking about dice. Uh, we will use terms like 1D10 or like in the name of our D&D uh, &D group, the Fellowship of the D20. Uh, the D in that stands for die. And the number after it is how many sides that die has. Uh, so a D10 is a 10-sided die. A D20 is a 20-sided die. The number that goes before the D is how many of those dice you're supposed to roll. So 1D10 means to roll one, D, one 10 sided die. 3D6 means to roll three six sided dice. And with that out of the way, why don't we get into the spells they used in Dungeons and Dragons movie, Honor Among Thieves. I believe you had some to start us out with, didn't you, Steve? I sure do. Now, before we dive into the list, I want to talk about the spell process of how spellcasting works in D&D. There are two main kinds of spells, uh, cantrips, which are listed as level zero, and leveled spells, which range from first and ninth level. Cantrips are basically spells that you can cast at will, and there are no limitations to casting it, but they are often fairly weak as spells go, though they may uh, scale up in level uh, as, as you go up. With leveled spells, they're often more powerful, but you have to be at a certain level to cast them, and you have to have what are called spell slots. There are different spell slots for each level, and you need the right level spell slot to cast certain spells. So a first level wizard cannot cast third level spells because they don't have any third level spell slots. You gain those spell slots during the course of play as you rise in the levels as a spellcaster. And also as an aside, it depends what class you are because some are full casters, uh, meaning that you know you gain uh, at a certain level. And then uh, you have half casters like paladins and rangers that gain them more slowly. So you have to keep that in mind too. Keep in mind uh, that I'm talking fifth edition rules. Many of the spells I'm going to mention do exist in previous editions, which have their own rules, and we will not get into those here because otherwise we're going to be forever. Also, there are too many spells to list. So Mike and I have put together a list of spells that stood out to us and that were featured in the film. Um, I would like to take a couple of minutes to talk about Safina spells, if we could. Uh, Safina uses a ninth level transmutation spell called Time Stop twice in the movie. And by the way, ninth level is the highest level your spells can go in fifth edition, like I said. That means that Time Stop can only be cast by the most powerful of wizards. And that right there shows you the vast range of her powers. It works a lot like you see in the film. And I think some details from the spell explain her actions. Did you notice how 
Sofina intentionally avoided touching anything in the time stop radius. Well, that's because the spell ends the second she touches anything else or does anything that affects a creature or an object within the thousand foot radius of the spell. Also, the second Safina leaves the radius, that spell also stops. The caster has a limited number of moves and actions they could take during the spell, and that is a maximum of five, or rather 1d4 plus 10. So it could very well just be two. And just one last quick thing. Safina did not need to approach Edgen to use her seventh level necromancy spell, Finger of Death. It has a 60-foot range, uh, so I have to guess that making her have to touch Egan was probably just for dramatic effect. And to bring this around back to Time Stop, being invisible would not have made Kira immune to the Time Stop. So there would be no sneaking up and putting a binding bracer on her. Uh, but had Sophina used the finger of death on Edgen and he died, it would have been excruciating. And Edgen would have risen again as a zombie permanently under Sophina's control. Yeah, I'm trying to mind, imagine Chris Pine rising from the dead as a zombie. Especially <laughs> if they buried him in the Southern Cemetery near next to the speak with dead corpse. <laughs> But yeah, you don't mess around with Time Stop. That is a nasty spell that goes back to earlier editions. That's a spell that you'll deal with sometimes when playing Baldur's Gate 2. And it's a spell that liches love to cast at you in the game and then spam Finger of Death. Uh, it's a very high-level spell, though. And fortunately, you won't get in too many ninth-level spell slots even as a 20th-level caster in 5th edition. I agree that Finger of Death is one of the truly nasty high-level spells, along with Disintegrate. They were going for a high-level adventure with spellcasters like that. But not all the spells that we're talking about are game enders, even if they can be really useful in the right situation. So let me uh, mention a spell that I find useful fairly often now, and that is Shield. Simon tries to cast Shield early on when dealing with the audience. That ends up being cast as a reverse gravity spell, uh, perhaps as a wild magic surge, but Shield is a spell on his list. We also see Safina throw up a Shield as well. Now, I love Shield because it's one of the best defensive options that a spellcaster can get in the early levels. The spell increases your armor class by five for an entire turn, making you much harder to hit, and that gives you a good defensive bonus while it's in effect. Shield is also the only low-level spell I know of which will full-on stop a magic missile, rendering it useless. And I will tell you that why that's such a great benefit when I talk about how magic missile works, so let's do that now. Magic missile is an old staple of D&D, and it's been around for the entire history of the game. Um, I currently have an Arcanic Cleric of Mistra named Asteria, and she gets the spell as a class feature. Anyway, Magic Missile throws several darts of magical force at a target for 1d4 plus one damage per hit. The darts automatically hit with no attack roll or saving throw needed, it just hits. It, it's a good option if you're facing a hard to hit opponent with high AC, as we have sometimes have to deal with. To make matters worse, force damage is the best damage type in the game, and it almost always hits. Would you care to guess how many times I've run into enemies with resistance or immunity to force damage in our entire campaign with the Fellowship of the D20? Once. Exactly <laughs> once. Against an enemy type I likely am never going to see again. I am not even kidding. Force damage is awesome, which is why I use it constantly. That makes Magic Missile a really good low-level attack spell. Unless you can cast Shield, which makes it into a waste of a spell slot. But both of these spells are ridiculously good, and you'll be glad to have them in your spellbook. 
I, I just want to say that Steve knows his spellcasting stuff. So if he gives me advice on spells, I take it. Uh, but that is just me. Uh, for now, though, I have to talk about the questioning of the dead in Evermore. Uh, Simon the Sorcerer uses an enchanted object uh, to cast the third level necromancy spell, speak, of the, speak to the dead. Uh, typically, only bards and clerics can use this spell. Uh, but there are many such magical objects in D&D with varying levels of power in the game. Uh, typically, they need to be attuned to work, uh, which requires time to do. I would like to clear one thing up about this. Uh, speak with the dead only lasts for 10 minutes, regardless of whether or not you ask, the, ask it five questions it can answer. <laughs> also, while the dead knows what it knew in life, the exact wording of the text is that it only has the semblance of life and intelligence. Answers from the dead with this spell are usually brief, cryptic, or repetitive, and the corpse is under no compulsion to offer a truthful answer, especially if you are hostile to it or recognize you as an enemy. Uh, the Fellowship of the D20 raised a dwarf once who kept telling us to eat his ass when we asked him a question uh, because he viewed us as an enemy. <laughs> it was hilarious, but I will say that having the corpse stay alive was funny. Ah, gruel the cruel. Uh, how, how we do not miss you. Anyway, uh, this is another case where the movie breaks the rules, but it works for comedy. I noticed that the spell was off immediately. I mean, to the point where I had to pause the film to double check it because it sounded off to me. Sure enough, uh, as you pointed out, Speak With Dead has a 10-minute time limit. So according to Raw, that corpse is hidden in the ground a few minutes after the party leaves the cemetery and he ain't getting back up. But that was good as a joke, so I let it go. Um, I don't know if you waited to see the end credits, but if you did, there's a post-credit scene where the corpse is still animated. <laughs> Again, no way this would, would this ever work in a proper game of D&D, &D, but it's funny and it works for the movie. <laughs> there are a few spots that are different from what we are familiar with as players in Honor Among Thieves, uh, but they are all easily forgivable for the sake of a great movie. Uh, but let's talk about the spell that your character, Eleuthria, actually uses a lot, Steve. Sounds like fun. Um, there is a cantrip that I have used for Eleuthria sometimes, although not so much recently since I got extra attack, and that is uh, Green Flame Blade. Uh, we see the spell used by the Thaeans that attack Zank in the Underdark, and earlier on when a Thaean knight meets with Safina at Castle Never. Anyway, Green Flame Blade is a spell that um, is based on a druid spell used in previous editions, but with more of an arcane flavor. The idea with Green Flame Blade is that you cast a spell on your weapon, and it can strike an enemy with extra fire damage every time it hits. But Green Flame Blade is nice for one reason. You can hit one target with your flaming sword, and then you can hit another enemy uh, that's nearby with fire at the exact same time. It is a good option if you're looking for a spell sword or gish build, and you've got multiple enemies that are ganging up on you. What the heck is a gish build? Um, gishes are basically like magic-using fighters. Um, yeah, so, uh, yeah, spell swords, that kind of thing. Uh, okay. You know, that, that is a really sweet spell. Um, I play a barbarian, and he has been surrounded by enemies more times than I can count. And when that happens, my best move is to kill them one at a time and hope that my AC, Rage, and Bear Totem will keep me alive. So I can really appreciate the value of the Green Flame Blade uh, to not just inflict more damage, but also to attack multiple targets at once. That is just badass. Uh, but I believe you had more spells from the movie that you wanted to discuss, right, Steve? Yeah, though I will say um, I do kind of regret that you can't use those kind of melee cantrips um, when you get extra attack. The rules don't let you do it, but um, it is really awesome when you have them at the early levels. Anyway, um, I do, in fact. 
Let's talk about another one of my favorite low-level spell options, and that is Misty Step. Misty Step is a second-level conjuration spell that allows you to teleport up to 30 feet as a bonus action. You have to be able to see your destination, though, so keep that in mind. Uh, Safina uses Misty Step a couple of times to get away in, in the film, but our party has also liked to make use of it. Mims Cleric Karlsruhe used this one often early in our first campaign. He's a Ladrin, so he got an unlimited number of uses for free as a racial bonus. Um, but in our current campaign, I like to have a Luthria cast Misty Step if I need to get her out of a tight spot. So if she's surrounded by enemies or if I want to get her out of melee combat without triggering an opportunity attack by the enemy, it's a good trick to have. Um, it can also be nice if you want to support a party member and you have enemies blocking your way. You just dance right past them, no problem. Sometimes it's also good for getting past obstacles. For instance, uh, if you can see into a room but can't find the door, or if you want to teleport up to a high ledge without trying to climb it, Misty Step is one of those spells you will always have a use for, but you'll want to be mindful of those second-level spell slots. More good advice from a good spellcaster. Uh, but I would like to talk about another spell of Sophina's. Sophina casts what are known as Black Tentacles, or sometimes Evard's Black Tentacles. Um, it is a fourth-level conjuration spell she uses twice in the movie. Once to restrain Simon, Edgen, and Holga inside Forge's vault, and again, just for Edgen as he talks to Forge. Uh, but it is a bit different from how it works in the game. For instance, the tentacles take up a 20-foot square on the ground and not just enough to hold individuals. And there is zero control over said tentacles, like Sophina seems to have. Uh, they simply are, and they also do 3d6 worth of bludgeoning damage each turn until a strength or a dexterity saving throw is made. However, Safina would have had to concentrate for the one minute the spell lasts, or they would disappear. The Fellowship of the D20 has been caught in black tentacles a couple of times, and let me tell you, it is quite the pain, especially when it's cast in an area that the party has to go through. It, it has also taught us to avoid being caught in a corridor, if we can avoid it. Well, without an aura of protection from the Paladin anyway. And by the way, aura <laughs> of protection is your friend against saving throws. Um, anyway, uh, very true. You, you, you don't want to pack yourself too tightly when you're facing a spellcaster most of the time. On top of what you've already mentioned, the zone of attack black tentacle spell is considered difficult terrain, which lowers your movement speed and makes it harder to get out of the area of, uh, of effect for the spell. Trying to move through difficult terrain to get outside of a 20-foot area of effect is not my idea of fun. <laughs> no, it is not. I'm definitely with you on that one. Our PCs are like, what the hell? <laughs> <laughs> Our first DM, Neff, was particularly wicked with Evard's black tentacles. He knew just where to put those to make them a huge obstacle for the party. They could really throw a wrench into your plan, especially if you're being attacked on either side of them. It forces you to go through them, and that is their cruelty. Uh, but now I would like to talk about the journey of Dungeons & Dragons from hiding in the basement and playing in secret to modern times where people are bragging about playing D&D. It is amazing how many celebrities and artists have DM or GM or D&D player in their bios. It is that popular. But how the heck did it get there, Steve? That's a good question. Um, as you might imagine, uh, tabletop RPGs like D&D are not a typical kind of game. With traditional board games, you're often playing against the other people at the table. That's not the way D&D works. Typically, this game is very cooperative, and you have to work with the other players to overcome the challenges of each encounter. D&D is more about taking part in the larger freeform story with you taking the role of one of the party members in the adventure. It's partly role-playing, 
and partly about using the abilities you have to succeed in your encounters. The game is often about creating a new character and having fun in that role. The DM basically plays everything outside of the main characters with the idea of helping guide the story along and present challenges for the group to overcome. Also, not everything in this game is combat. You have to do social encounters and use skills that are unrelated to combat to solve mysteries. So, Mike, why don't we talk about the history of the game? I love this stuff, so I'd be glad to. Uh, Dungeons and Dragons is the world's most popular role-playing game, and 2014's fifth edition is its most popular version. Uh, but it all started 52 years ago in 1971, when Gary Gygax developed a medieval warfare game called Chainmail. Chainmail was basically battle mechanics for armies made up of miniatures played on a tabletop. In that respect, Chainmail was similar to the tabletop game Warhammer that came out in 1983, which was also inspired by Tolkien by the way. In fact, even what became Magic the Gathering uh, that came out in 1993 from WotC is also a battle mechanics tabletop game played with cards inspired by D&D and fantasy. In 1974, 36-year-old Gary Gygax and 27-year-old David Arneson uh, created the game Dungeons & Dragons that expanded on Gygax's chainmail game and fantasy novels he loved as a child, namely The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. Gary Gygax and David Arneson published D&D under Gary Gygax's company Tactical Studies Rules, or as it is, as is, is more commonly known, TSR. Three years later, Gygax started working on, on a comprehensive edition of D&D called Advanced Dungeons and & Dragons, and this is really where D&D came into its own, at least in my opinion. Gygax made a lot of manuals of various types to describe the mechanics and the world that the game was played in. One big thing besides the manuals that came out with this edition was the adventures, then called modules, which gave the dungeon master or DM a loose script and ideas on how to run the game. The game's soaring popularity led to D&D-themed miniature figuring uh, for enhanced tabletop play, books, television shows, and movies. Then in 1989 came AD&D, Advanced Dungeons and Dragons, uh, second edition. And then in 1995, AD&D 2.5, or revised edition. Uh, but that was the last of the TSR D&D, and to many who played back then, 2.5 is the last real D&D game. However, that would not be the last of Dungeons and Dragons. In 1997, Wizards of the Coast, the subsidiary of Hasbro Inc., acquired Dungeons and Dragons. Since the purchase, Watsi has put out a new version almost every couple of years. This was understandable to some degree as they were figuring it all out initially. But in my opinion, it stopped being about perfecting the game and it became about selling books. Uh, but you decide. They put out 3rd edition in 2000, and just three years later, they put out revised 3.5 edition. Again, many who played this edition felt that 3.5 was their D&D, and I totally get that. I hardcore got into D&D with 5th edition, and that is my D&D. You invest time and money learning the game a certain way and getting the things you need to play, and you want to stick with that. But back to the editions of the game. Five years later, in 2008, they put out 4th edition. And in 2010, uh, released Dungeons & Dragons Essentials. That was 4E compatible. So in 10 years, they put out four editions of the game. 
Bear in mind that every time they do this, players have to buy all new books. That is why you see so many books on the shelves of people who play. Uh, but then we get into 5th edition in 2014, and that is one that lasted longer than any other. In fact, as of this recording, 5e is still the standard until one D&D finally takes over in 2024 with the new core rule books. The game has definitely changed a lot since the early days. Um, I go back to the days when TSR owned D&D. And the game really has evolved tremendously since I played in high school. They've done a good job of making a version of D&D that, while not perfect in every aspect, monks, uh, it, it's reasonably balanced and accessible to new players. D&D um, was always on the radar of pop culture to some extent, but it didn't become noticeable until the era of third edition after I dropped out of the game. A large part of that is that the game began to be referenced on TV shows and films, including Buffy, uh, That 70s Show, Community, The Big Bang Theory, uh, which also referenced comics quite often, and Freaks and Geeks. Now, I personally didn't watch all those shows, though I remain a huge Buffy fan. I think Xander was actually um, a player. Oh, nice, nice. Uh, we, we are actually on opposite ends on the shows, though. Um, I have watched several of the shows on that list. In fact, that 70s show and the Big Bang Theory are two of my all-time favorites. I enjoyed Freaks, Freaks and Geeks, too, but I, I have to admit I have not watched Community. I, honestly, I... I, I only vaguely remember hearing about it, huh? but I, I'm going to check on it, though. Uh, I'd like to see what you and your nephew are watching. I'm, I'm intrigued by the idea of you watching a sitcom, honestly. <laughs> and actually, I believe you wanted to talk about the D&D episode from Community, am I right? As it happens, I do. Um, I did uh, see a fair amount of Community after my nephew got into the show, so I want to talk a little bit about their D&D episode. Abbott is the resident geek, and there was an episode where he decided to DM a game to help with his friend's uh, suicidal depression. In fact, I think that was even the point of the episode, you know, the idea that the game can save lives and that it doesn't necessarily lead to suicide, um, as it had often uh, been uh, rumored to. Um, there are some fun facts behind the episode I'd like to share, though. Um, one is that the director is none other than Joe Russo. Yes, the same Joe Russo that co-directed films like Captain America, The Winter Soldier, and the Avengers uh, Infinity War films. Wow. But the reason they went with a D&D &D episode is that creator Dan Harmon uh, played the game frequently when he was younger, and he wanted to channel that. Unfortunately, the streaming services uh, took offense at Ken Jong putting on drow makeup, and you can't find it on either Hulu or Netflix now, uh, though you can buy it on Amazon still. Still, it's not too bad of a show, even if you can tell that nobody on it ever said put in a community college. <laughs> <laughs> I, I spent I spent some time at Butte Community College here in Northern California, so now I definitely have to check it out. Um, however, I'm a little surprised about being offended by Ken Jong putting on drow makeup. I mean, drow have black skin or even purplish skin. I've seen in comics, uh, they are a fantasy race of creatures. People really need to stop applying their political and social agendas to fucking everything. It is fantasy, people. Make believe. There is a saying, sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. Granted, they're talking about Freudian dream interpretations, uh, but it, it, I think it applies here too. I think the idea with D&D and cosplay is to have fun. When you stop doing that, you've missed the entire point. Uh, but let's get back to how D&D went from something nerds did in their basement in secret to becoming a part of pop culture, Steve. Sounds good to me. The sea change that really helped the game uh, boom started with Lord of the Rings trilogy becoming a, a huge mainstream blockbuster film series, as well as the success of the Harry Potter films. That led the way for shows like Game of Thrones, The Witcher, and others. 
By the time 5e arrived in 2014, you got celebrities getting involved with the game, including Critical Role in 2015. But probably the biggest recent reference to D&D and pop culture came from the 2016 show Stranger Things, which featured a D&D group called the Hellfire Club. And yes, for X-Men fans wondering, the Hellfire Club on Stranger Things did take their name from the X-Men comics. The show directly references an issue of the Dark Phoenix saga. It is not a coincidence. Um, I will admit that I have not seen a lot of Stranger Things beyond a few episodes, so I can't talk about it too much, but I will admit that bringing in Demogorgon was a cool move. Um, I remembered him from the Watcher's Keep uh, optional dungeon in Baldur's Gate 2 Throne of Ball. He was an optional super boss and one of the nastiest monsters in that game. Stranger Things would reference other uh, D&D concepts as well, including the Mind Flayer as well as Vecna, a powerful lich who ascended to godhood. Mike, uh, I know that you're deeper into the Stranger Things lore than me, so did you want to talk about it? I would love to. Uh, not only do the characters and the series play D&D, the group of them are very much like an adventuring party. Uh, much like a new party, they start out as nothing, just level one characters with no experience under their belts. Uh, but the kids deal with dangerous situations as a group, including monsters, according to their levels, if you will. Uh, the first couple encounters were with demodogs uh, and the upside down bats. The, then, of course, later on, they're fighting bigger threats uh, from the Upside Down, like the Demogorgon, Mind Players, and Vecna, like you mentioned. And for the record, while these creatures in Stranger Things have some things in common with their D&D counterparts, they are mostly named thusly because the kids have D&D as a common frame of reference. Even the Upside Down is a reference to the Underdark from Forgotten Realms. Uh, but the point I was making was that the adventuring party of Stranger Things even becomes more and more capable as the show goes on just like leveling up. Eventually, the nobodies we first saw uh, become the heroes of the story, and that, too, is like Dungeons & Dragons. That is pretty cool, and I love the foundational elements of that show. Stranger Things is rooted pretty noticeably in Stephen King, but the element of the D&D table brings those ideas and life to life in a cool and new way, and it just sounds like the kind of thing a group of kids that are way in there over their heads would do. But I think you wanted to talk about how the show affected you. Oh, I do, Steve. Uh, now, this is the part I talked about earlier when I when I said I would talk about the spark that finally made me get serious about D&D. Well, here it is. The first season of Stranger Things in 2016 really got me thinking about those occasional games I played in my teens and those very basic RPGs I used to play with my dad. Um, honestly, for many years, I was the only geek I knew. But had I known anybody I could have gotten into a game with in 2016, I would have done it. It actually didn't even occur to me that I could have done it online. Of course, season two came out and then season three, and each season pushed me closer to that line. But in 2022, season four of Stranger Things came out, and we were introduced to the Hellfire Club. By then, I had done a lot of stuff online with comics and podcasts and met several fellow geeks like my friend Steve here. Uh, plus, by then, I could watch a lot of others play on YouTube, and I saw that it was possible to play that way. Um, in May of 2022, I set it as a goal that I would form a D&D &D group out of the people I knew online. 
when I set a task to myself, I take it seriously and I devote myself to it until it happens. By June of 2022, I had gathered together my friend Steve here, Nem, who is our DM and co-host of Countless Corpses podcast, and a few others I knew from Twitter, and we became the fellowship of the D20. I am proud to say that we had our one-year anniversary playing together back in June of this year. Now I can't imagine my life without the game and my friends gathering every Sunday night. But speaking of playing D&D online, I believe you had more to say about that, didn't you, Steve? Indeed I do. There's no question that the internet changed uh, tabletop RPGs and especially the way D&D is played. The advent of streaming on platforms like YouTube and Twitch allowed for actual plays of their games. This also made shows like Critical Role possible, even further growing the format. You had online communities growing that were devoted to various tabletop games, including uh, Vampire the Masquerade, Call of Cthulhu, uh, which Mike and I also play uh, with people at Wicked Publishing and them, and many others. Another factor that grew uh, RPG culture was uh, COVID, which also led to people looking for ways to entertain themselves that didn't involve being in direct contact with people. A good uh, outlet for that was tabletop RPGs, which could be played online without putting anybody at risk. That turned out to be successful for games like D&D for at least a couple of years, and even now the uh, popularity of the game isn't slowing up. Even recent controversies involving Wizard of the Coast and Rasbro in early 2023 only served to highlight independent game systems like Pathfinder or simply encourage people to play 5e as they always have done. Uh, what the players understand, and corporations don't, is that at its core, the game is all about the players playing them, or the people playing them. As long as uh, you have good people to build a gaming table around, you can make a game work with any kind of system. Now technology has made it possible to connect players in a way that would not have been imaginable in the days of first and second edition. Absolutely. That is certainly true of our show. And I am thankful for platforms like StreamYard and Roll20 for making play, playing tabletop RPGs possible on the level we're doing it at. I mean, with all of us having our own screens, maps, miniatures, and digital dice to play on a map, it, it, is, it is as close to the real experience as we're going to get uh, online right now. As you said, Steve, the concept of online RPGs like this was not even possible uh, back in uh, second edition, uh, let alone actualizing it. Uh, but let me talk about our D&D show. Uh, the Fellowship of the D20 is what you call a real play show, meaning we're not actors and we're not performing. Uh, we're just six friends playing D&D 5e and having a good time doing it. Uh, but that is not to say anything bad about how others do it. If you're looking to form a group, I can only suggest what worked for me. I used Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube to find players. I knew, and, uh, uh, I knew a few people that might want to play, and I started there. Um, I knew a few of them fairly well from work, and the other two, including our DM, uh, were totally strangers. Uh, we talked things out via StreamYard in the Zero session, We and that is how we became the Fellowship of the D20. That's how we got started. I think it only took about a month and a half or so to get everyone together. Uh, did you have anything you wanted to say before we dive into making characters, Steve? Sure. Uh, I love D&D shows like Critical Role, and, and, I, and when I have some time, I, I like to watch that show and see how they do it. And if you want to learn the game, I mean, Critical Role is a good place to start. Matt Mercer is a great DM, and he put together a quality group of people for his table. Um, I also wish we had Mercer's budget for his maps and props, because they, <laughs> they make it look so good. But nobody else can be Critical Role. Those, those people are all professional voice actors at the top of their game, and not everyone can play the way that they can. I know I can't do it like them, and I'm absolutely cool and totally at peace with that. Just play your game your way and keep learning the game as you find your voice as a player. 
Um, our, our show is more about our honest reactions to the crazy things that happen at the gaming table and how our group tries to dig our way out of them and making really obscure pop culture references to get inspiration. <laughs> anyway, uh, let's move on to one of the really fun parts of the game, Mike. Oh, that sounds awesome. I would like to talk about making characters for Dungeons and Dragons. Although I will admit that I have a lot more fun playing the characters than I do making them. Uh, but that might change after I get more years under my belt and perhaps when Bjorn finally reaches level 20. Um, we shall see. Mm -hmm. But let's talk about making characters. Uh, the players other than the DM each make player characters or PCs. Before you start, you are going to need a character sheet, whether it's physical or digital. While both Steve and I believe that the rules need to be learned before they are broken, the first thing that you should know is that you are not bound to stereotypes. Make your character however you wish, though there might be some limits depending on your DM. The only trick to making a character is your storytelling ability and imagination. Typically, if you can fit it into a story well and it doesn't make you a god or something, I imagine most DMs are flexible. Uh, but that said, creating characters has a few steps. The first step that I personally use is figuring out who my character is going to be. For instance, when I created Bjorn, my concept was a Norse Conan the Barbarian uh, with, a, with, a, with a bear theme, um, hence the name Bjorn. In Norse, that actually means bear, so that's that's why I named him that. Uh, and it's not Bjorn is not a D and D name. So, like I said, I, I just kind of went with my own thing there. Um, I searched what was available and came up with a 5e version of the character I had in mind. There are things in the core rulebook that can guide you in this, but ultimately you determine your character's backstory and personality, their strengths and their weaknesses, their goals and aspirations, and of course, your character's moral alignment. Is your character good? evil or somewhere in the middle does the character believe in law and order or chaos and anarchy or perhaps they are neutral and not on any side at all the more fleshed out your character is the easier it will be to role play them to be fair some of this will depend on how accommodating your dm is going to be uh, the idea that you're going to be working with the other members of your party to, uh, to, to get through encounters whether it's combat or role play it's trickier to pull that off if you're playing a chaotic evil character like the joker and some DMs may not go for that. Um, I tend to play good aligned characters because they're easy for, easier for me to play and because I want my characters to be able to cooperate with my party if at all possible. If you want to go darker, you might be able to do it, I mean, assuming the DM approves, but you need to build in a reason for why your evil character is cooperating with the rest of the group. Uh, a lawful evil vengeance paladin might work with the party because he swore an oath to help them or because he shares a common enemy with the party or because his god commanded him to. You have a lot of uh, flexibility with your motivations and background, so you have plenty of options. Have fun. So true. Uh, your party is something that you should take into consideration when making your characters, and I think Steve spelled it out nicely. Uh, once you have a picture in your head of who your character is and what they look like, it's easier to do the next couple of steps, which are choosing the race and class of your character. There are many options to choose from in races like human, elf, dwarf, halfling, tiefling, gnome, and many others. Each one has its own benefits and disadvantages. Um, the next part is choosing the class or trade of your character. There are barbarians, paladins, clerics, fighters, rogues, wizards, warlocks, sorcerers, rangers, monks, artificers, and bards. You'll find that certain races are adept at aspects of certain classes and abilities. Um, but you choose the path that fits your story, which is also something you should clear with your DM or be 
or or be flexible with um because it might need to change if the dm doesn't like it then based on this information you will know what skills benefits and feats go with the racing class of your character the best yeah you can do this a couple of ways uh, one is the way that mike outlined which is having the character idea first and then building the racing class around that concept that's perfectly valid and it can work i mean look at bjorn it won't always work out as planned uh, because sometimes you're going to look at game mechanics and they won't always accommodate the idea you're going for. I love the idea of the monk class, for instance, but the rules for monks are not great, especially if you need to multi-class into something else. That makes certain ideas tricky to implement. But if you're going for something simple that only requires a single class, I mean, that might be more doable. Um, the other way to do it is to start what you what you have, want mechanically and then build your character around those mechanics. Other players build around optimizing characters and then trying to build a character who can do tons of damage or be good at certain party roles like healing or support or taking damage. Um, once you have that in place, then you can start thinking about character ideas and build them around the mechanics that you're working with. If you're more into the role play angle and you're not so much into optimizing, I mean, that's totally fair, too. And you don't really need to do it like that if that's not your speed. Just have fun. Um, there may be times when you'll pick a class because uh, you'll want to round out the group and fill an important niche in the party. So you end up building a character around what the group needs. Um, and that's a valid approach too, though not required. I mean, there, there, there are definitely parties that have uh, multiple people playing similar classes. But honestly, sometimes you might think about playing a certain race or class is cool and you just want to play that thing. Uh, with my character, Eleuthria, I knew I wanted to play a Drow Paladin, but I was also really interested in the Hexblade Warlock. So our DM guided me into uh, making Eleuthria the character that she is in our game, where she's all those things. Um, I was familiar with a lot of drow lore from reading uh, the Salvatore novels and playing uh, Baldur's Gate 2. So I worked in a lot of that while trying not to rehash Druids. Um, this is why Eleuthria does not act like a traditional paladin. Um, I wanted her to have that drow pragmatism, but also be restrained by her sacred oath and a code of honor. So she'll often be a ranged attacker unless she has a good reason to fight in melee. At the same time, she honors the rules of hospitality and she doesn't like to attack opponents who can't fight back. Because 5e has changed how paladins work in the game, you have a lot of flexibility to design one without writing them all like zinc. The point is, is that you have plenty of room to interpret these classes in different ways, depending on what you build and what the rules allow you to do. You know, I would also like to point out that what you start out with is not always what you end up with. I think Eleuthria yeah. is a classic example of that. Yeah, uh, she so ended up becoming a sorcerer as well. Right, right. So, I mean, I mean, like again, this this game is not rigid. Uh, but you know, I'd not considered trying to make a character the way that you described it. There, um, I think I'm going to see if I can't work out the mechanics that I want to make character on next time. Um, but now we have to talk about attributes. The attributes are filled into your character sheet by rolling dice and applying the numbers to the character's attributes. Constitution, strength, dexterity, intelligence, wisdom, and charisma. These help determine how effective the character is in performing various actions. And your choices, again, should reflect who your character is and what abilities they have. All of these character decisions will ultimately factor into every decision your character makes. But alas, it is the dice that often determine determines our success. 
most complex actions have a probability of failing and the DM will ask you to roll to see if you succeed in what you want to do. This is when the dice come into the gameplay. Success in an action is determined by rolling a 20-sided die. The higher your number, the greater your chance of success. There are other times in combat and casting and casting spells and whatnot that you will need to roll one of the other six D&D dice. Uh, these are the four, six, eight, 10 and 12 sided dice or the, or the, and, or the one percentile die. Um, don't worry when you get in, when you get into actually playing the game and, and, and you'll, you know what, what to roll then because um, either the books or, and, or the DM will, will let you know what's going on. It's not as confusing as it might sound. No, it's really not. Uh, the great thing about fifth edition D and D is that you have different, uh, ways of rolling up your character even. You can roll just a D20 for each stat and see how it goes. Or you can roll four D6 dice and then drop the lowest one, which is uh, what we typically do in our campaigns. Uh, 5e also allows for what's called a point buy system, where you get a pool of points to distribute among your stats, and you can decide where you want to put each of your points, much just like you might do in a video game like uh, Fallout. Uh, just use whatever method you like. I, I personally like the 4D6 method, and I've gotten some pretty decent stats that way. But the game is flexible, and you can use the creation method that works best for your playstyle. I, I personally prefer the 4D6 method as well. Um, there are lots of rules, guidelines, and intricately detailed mechanics in D&D, but none of it is so rigid that you can't hit that magic homebrew button or do things your own way, like how you make your characters. Um, I really love this game, and it is my hope that this episode has inspired others to play Dungeons & Dragons. I wanted to give you, who might not be as familiar with the game, some insight into what you're watching when you see Honor Among Thieves, or check out some of uh, the D&D games on YouTube and Twitch. Playing D&D or even Call of Cthulhu is honestly the couple of chances I have for a break in the week uh, because of how much how busy I am with work. I speak from personal experience when I say that D&D has built some friendship and strengthened others as well as what, and that is what I hope for you. I hope that you find that bond and community with your group as well if you choose to play the game. Oh, likewise. This is why it's so important to find the right group to play with. Way back in the day before the Fellowship started, I, I have seen games completely fall through because of personality conflicts. We've been very fortunate that that has not been the case with our group. The people sitting at our table have all been fun to play with, and I consider them all really good friends. If you see the kind of crazy stuff we do on our real plays, all of that is genuine. We do not script any of it aside from our intros, and what you see is all our genuine reactions to what's going on at the table. Um, I don't know about you, Mike, but now I'm looking forward to our next game session. <laughs> Hell yeah. I am totally looking forward to next Sunday. Uh, but that about wraps up our D&D &D and Honor Among Thieves episode. Uh, me and Steve really love this game, and I think we both really enjoyed the movie. Um, I hope you've had as much fun hanging out with us as we've had making this episode. 